If you have a Bible, we're going to be back in 1 Corinthians today. Talk about Paul's plea for unity in the church. Uh, we're going to read beginning in verse 10. We'll pray first. And Father, once again, Lord, as we always do as a church, we just ask you, Lord, that you'll speak to us clearly through your word. And ask, Lord, you'll use this to not just be another word that we've heard, but one that we put into practice, Lord. And, and that you'll just draw our body closer together, Lord, and bring unity here. And we just thank you that you'll do that by your spirit and the word of God. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're looking at verse 10, and we'll read through verse 17, and Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. There be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Well, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, and besides, I do not whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be of no effect. You know, one thing that's interesting in looking at the whole book of 1 Corinthians is that every sin and every problem, I might have said this last week, I don't remember, but every sin or problem that Paul has to deal with in the church at Corinth which was a first century church, which is a church that he founded, personally founded. At one time or another, everything he mentions in there has been a problem here. You know, his church has been in existence for over 30 years, but at one time or another, it's been a problem here at SCA. And so what does that tell us? Well, it tells me this, that there are three things that never change. Three things that never change, and it's not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even though they don't change. That's the eternal God. But what doesn't change is, I'm telling you, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all three of those are actively warring against God and his people. In 1 John 2, I haven't heard this verse in a while, but it says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. So the world, its allurements, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all of that is what has entered in and caused these problems in Corinth and causes us problems. None of that's changed. It hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is technology. People are basically still the same, and the devil hasn't changed. Because 1 John 5 says this, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So the world lies in the power of the evil one, the devil. In other words, it's telling us there that he has got the world in his grip. And it started in the garden, continued all the way through up to the church at Corinth, in Paul's day, and it continues right up to now. But I'm saying now to me, his grip is tightening, isn't it? I think it is. It's tightening on the church. It's tightening on the world. And it's only the sovereign grace of God that delivers anybody from the Paul of the lion. It's like that song we sing. One day, the Father from heaven, he reached down into this 
world that lies in the hands of the devil reached down with his righteous right hand and he plucked us out of eternal dangers. Rather than being in that grip that's gripping more and more around the world, that's what's coming in the book of Revelation. His grip's going to be so tight, there are few that are going to escape that. That's what the Bible teaches us. And instead now we're in the Lord's hand, aren't we? He's taken us out of that grip that's tightening, and, and that's just his sovereign grace. As it says in Zechariah, a brand plucked from the fire. <laughs> Praise God that he's done that. What I'm saying is what happened in Corinth has happened in Christian churches down through the centuries. And that's why this letter is in God's word. So we can learn from their mistakes and we can also learn from how God instructs us on how to deal with the same problem. Nothing's changed. We have the same problems to deal with here that they had to deal with back then. And Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes, that that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? He says, it has already been in ancient times before us. This book's as current as it gets. So it's interesting to me, of all the sins that Paul has to deal with in the church of Corinth, and some of them were pretty bad. I mean, he's got to deal with incest, he's dealing with fornication. He's dealing with people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Lawsuits and greed are taking place there. And if those things were going on here, any of those, there would be a clamor that, hey, we need to deal with this. And rightly so. That's the way it should be. But first and foremost, out of all of the things Paul deals with in this church, the first thing he deals with is what? He deals with division and discord. Here in America, we think it's a right and a privilege to create division and have discord and vocalize our opinions and cause trouble. But the Bible says, if we're going to stick with what the Bible says, the Bible says God hates it. That's Proverbs 6. He says, these six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. He begins the list with a proud look, a lying tongue, and it ends up, this is the last thing on the list, but it's not the least. The last thing he says that God hates and is an abomination to him is he that sows discord among the brethren. And that's just the continual issue that's always being dealt. And we're all guilty of it to one degree or another, aren't we? I'm convicted when I put messages together. I'm like, is everything I say about everybody of the church I'm pastor of, is it always edifying? Is it always necessary for me to say or think what I do? It's all of us in here. Nobody's exempt. But we're not exempt to say, well, that's just the way it is and just keep going on like the way we are. That's the whole purpose for teaching, learning and growing. So, you know, in a sense, you could say strife and division is just part of life because we see it on the big picture, don't we? I mean, our country right now, they are literally talking about having a literal civil war over the divisions that's taking place. I mean, there are physical things happening to people based on their ideology. It's become physical where it's gone beyond verbal all because of who's our president and what he stands for. Either way, the liberal and the conservative ideologies are split 50-50 in this country. We are no longer, I would say, the United States of America. We are really the divided states of America. In California, they'd like to divide off of us. If they could, they tried that. But it's interesting, though, talking about division, that when you look at professional sports teams, it's everywhere, though. But one thing they understand, and they understand that if you're going to be a successful sports team, that unity is in the locker room is essential. 
Because every now and then you'll hear about this athlete that he is like great, he is phenomenal, whatever, but he's a problem in the locker room and he gets a reputation for it and they will get him out of there quick. The team that's probably the most successful, the New England Patriots, they don't put up with any of that stuff. They don't put up with any dissension within their ranks and they clamp down on that pretty hard, but they're also very successful. So we all know the phrase and it's just a truth, united we stand, divided we fall. And the first person to use that was Aesop, Aesop's fables, we all, the old Greek storyteller. And he had this story about a lion that used to prowl around this field, which had four oxen that lived there, and he'd try to attack them. But whenever he came near, the four oxen would turn their rear ends to each other with their horns pointing out. And if he tried to come at him, one of them would get him with their horns. But one time, however, they started quarreling amongst themselves and each went off to its own pasture alone in a separate quarter of the field. And then it says the lion attacked them one by one and soon made an end of them all. And that's the way it worked. And so Aesop, he's always got a little moral to the story. And he tells his fellow Greeks, here's the moral Greeks, united we stand, divided we fall. And that same phrase was used in this patriotic song in the Revolutionary War. And our first governor, the first governor of Kentucky, Isaac Shelby, he loved that. He loved that phrase. So as a result, it was written onto United We Stand, Divided We Fall. It was put on the Kentucky State Seal in 1792, and it became the official state motto in 1942. United We Stand, Divided We Fall. And that's the thing. The world understands the principle that basically Jesus is saying the same thing in Mark 3 when he says, and if a house be divided against itself, that house, he says, cannot stand. So here's what he's telling us. Division within a church, within a nation, within a family, whatever, it is guaranteeing a fall. It cannot stand. That's why Paul's dealing with this first. First and foremost, it's that important. So it's an undisputed principle. A nation, a family, like I said, a sports team, or more directly to our church. We have to be united. We come here to these verses 10 through 17, and it's Paul's passionate plea for unity is what I would call it in Corinth. And I've divided this into three headings. The plea, we'll look at first, then the problem, and the third is the gospel or the solution. The first is the plea, and there's his plea in verse 10. And he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. As serious as this situation is in the church of Corinth, which it really is, you know, divisions are very serious. Paul, though, he doesn't come on really strong to him. He doesn't demand action. And instead, how does he talk to the church? It says he pleads with them. That word for plead, it's parakaleo. It's what it's talked about where the Holy Spirit will come up and give you comfort and encouragement or urge you. It's the same word. And that's what it means there. It means to urge, to make an appeal, to exhort. What we need to see is Paul's talking to his church family. And he's saying, my brothers and sisters in Corinth, brothers and sisters, you're my family. I'm pleading with you to listen, that please put down the guns for a few minutes, Hatfields and McCoys, and just be reasonable. Listen to what I have to say. He's the spiritual father of that church. That's why he's pleading with them this way. So he loves them. He has an affection for them. And he has a true concern for their welfare. He doesn't want to see this church fall apart. 
And it's not for selfish reasons. You know, he doesn't just pull out his apostolic authority card, which he could, but he doesn't do that in this case. He's pleading in the name of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, that's the person I want you to refocus your lives on, the one that saved you by his blood, his grace, has called you into his fellowship. So I don't know if you remember last time, we looked at where nine times in his opening greeting in that letter, nine times Paul doesn't just say Jesus, he says the Lord Jesus Christ, that God's grace has come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been called into the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's trying to get them all focused on He's the one that we need to be centered on. And that's really kind of the point of why they're having problems. They've gotten off that center. Here's the way he expresses this unity that he wants them to have. He uses the word here in this verse, verse 10 that we're looking at, is the word same. S-A-M-E. So he tells them, I want you to speak the same thing. Perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He wants them to be the same. Now, does that mean they literally have to be the same in everything? They all have to drive the same car, eat the same peanut butter, live in the same neighborhood, and all of that? We know that's obviously not what he's talking about. That's not the sameness. But what does he mean? What does he mean when he says that you all speak the same thing? Well, sometimes we can understand things by their opposites, can't we? The opposite of speak the same thing is when he says this here, when you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. The word for divisions is schism, schismatic. That's what the word is. And it's the same word to help you understand what it means and how it's used elsewhere. In John chapter 7, verse 43 The people had heard Jesus talk about the Holy Spirit. And he said, when he comes, and it's a future thing, he tells them, he'll be living water flowing out of you. Rivers of living water will flow out of them. And when he said that, it says this in John 7. It says, some said truly, after they heard that, this is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? And it says, so there was a division, a schism, a tearing apart, a division among the people because of him. Here's what was happening. They weren't saying the same things about Jesus, were they? There was a difference of opinion between the people and it was causing dissension. The people were taking sides. That's what he's talking about here when he says, speak the same thing and that there be no divisions, what he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 10. Later, a couple chapters later in John, in John chapter 9, Jesus heals the blind man, the man that was born blind. And the Pharisees come to him and they say, well, how did you receive your sight? And he said to them, well, he, Jesus, put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, it says, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And then it says, and there was a division among them. Same word, division, schism. It wasn't a matter of they're willing to say, hey, well, we just have differences or whatever else, and we'll we'll just live with that, willing to live with it. No, that word for schism, it literally means to tear apart. To tear apart. It's a violent word. And this is what it would be like. It's like if you got a piece of cloth like I have right here, it's taking that piece of cloth and it's 
a tearing like that. That's what the word means. It's no longer one piece. It's torn apart, a division. That's what that word means, and that's what's taking place here. So what's Paul telling us here when he says he's talking to the church in Corinth? He's telling us that if you're a member of the church, now he's speaking to them, but he's speaking to us. He's saying you really are not allowed to express opinions that are contrary to what the Word of God teaches, or even, I would say, the way a church conducts its affairs to express those opinions, let me finish, that will cause schisms or divisions or dissensions within a church. We don't have that right or liberty. That's what he's saying. I want you all to speak the same things. We know this here. I don't think I come on like a dictator. You've got to believe everything I say. We've heard that a million times because I've said it. So we're not talking about error. We're not talking about sin. If the church asked you to do something that was you know, sinful, that well, I've just got to go along with that. We're not talking about that, obviously. But even if that was the case, even if I said something up here that you thought was error, there is a proper way of dealing with that, isn't there? There really is. And it's not to have a secret meeting about it. That's just not the way to do it. If you would put something there in 1 Corinthians and turn back to Acts 15, please. So here's how the early church dealt with a problem. Acts 15, beginning in verse 1, and it says there, And certain men came down from Judea. Now this is they came to Antioch, is what it's saying. The reason it always says came down to Judea, even though Antioch is up north, is because you have to come down to walk there, come down from the mountain. That's just the way they talk. So they don't look at it north-south like maybe we would. But they came down from Judea, and they taught the brethren, and here's what they taught them. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. So there's a problem that's come up, right? And not a small one, they're saying. They determined... Here's how they handled it, that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. When that problem arose in Antioch and that church, and like I said, it wasn't a small problem, how did they deal with it? They took it to the apostles and elders. That's the way to deal with issues. You got a disagreement where you don't like something that's going on or whatever. It doesn't have to necessarily be with the leadership or me or whoever it could just be amongst each other you have a disagreement and that's just not the time to get a group around you that's going to agree with you because you know they were and either speak against the leader the leadership here or others in the church that sounds self-serving doesn't it well believe me it's not just trust me it's not back in 1988 we were meeting at the other building back in 1988. There was a group of guys in this church. In this church, most of them aren't here now. I was one of them. I, by the grace of God, am here. We decided to have a meeting out at somebody's barn. There was talk going on to discuss what we were going to do about Brother Hamilton because of something that he had said in a message. All of this is, you know, we're defending truth. We're sticking up for truth. We're not going to allow compromise. You know, we thought he'd compromise truth. Well, and he found out about it. Because somebody had gotten wind of it and went and told him. And I'm going to say they should have. Because that's what we have here, isn't it? It says, Chloe, she's not trying to hide who she is. She's not a tattletale. You think they're all like, Chloe's a tattletale. She went to Paul. No, I mean, that's a serious thing. There's nothing wrong with that. That's something you need to come to leadership about. Brother Hamilton was hot. And I would say justly so. I've seen him deal with a couple things like that where there was P 
people meeting and, and plotting and scheming. And anyway, so he called everyone, the names of everyone that was involved in one by one. And I was blessed to come in right after he'd had a heated discussion with one of the brothers. So he pretty fired up when I walked in there. We started talking and after we talked a few minutes, I think he realized for me, it wasn't a personal thing with him. I'm, I'm in my ignorance thinking that I'm defending truth or whatever. And I think he realized that. And so he asked me at this point, our whole conversation totally changed tone. He's a, he's a smart guy. So he says, John, you know, you're a smart guy. Tell me what you would do in this situation. He explains this situation he had to deal with at church. My initial reaction is, I'd be da-da-da, you know, this is the way it should be, da-da-da. And he's like, okay, well, let me tell you from my side. And he put me in his shoes. And he goes, here's the situation from where these people are at. The woman, what she's dealing with. She's got no husband. All of a sudden, it's dawning on me. It's like, I get the point. I see what you're saying. I mean, I was totally convicted about everything. I'm thinking, it's just not as black and white as simple, especially when you're the pastor of a church and dealing with things. And I mean, I was totally convicted. And I realized, you know, dummy, you're not near as smart spiritually as you think you are. And I realized, too, that I was way out of bounds with what I had been involved in. And right then, I apologized to him. I said, I'm so sorry. I realized that I've been wrong. And I told him there, I made a vow to him. I said, I'm going to tell you what. I said, this whole thing of meeting out in the barn and all that, I'm done with that. And I said, from here on out, I said, if I have any issue with you whatsoever, I said, I'll come directly to you and talk to you. I'm not going to be talking to somebody else or behind your back or any of that stuff. And I did have several times, it was, wasn't anything big, where I had things that probably that's what I would have done. And I went and me and him talked. And we were able to talk through whatever. He's, he's not like what you would think to deal with. That's the way it worked. And I think that's the way it should be. You know, I've shared this before, Lisa and I, I mean, I believe we were chastised because of that and lost a baby over all of that, because that's no small thing. You read the Old Testament, those people, we'll read something here in a little bit, you raise up against leadership and out of criticism, and you're not doing it in a constructive way and out of this ambition or whatever, and God will deal with that harshly. I'm just glad I'm still here. And I'll tell you one thing I'll say in Brother Hamilton's favor, he never, ever brought that up again, ever. He asked me a little bit, it was 88, I think it was, I don't remember the first time I ever taught in this church. He came up to me and asked me to preach. He didn't hold that against me whatsoever. And so when somebody truly repents for anything, whatever it is in our church, should we hold that over their head? If it's true repentance, they get drunk, they commit fornication, they do whatever. I mean, if they truly repent, we should forgive them. And that's not something we should be holding over their head, right? Amen. Amen. So let me say here. I've got this. I think we'll do this sometime. I started to do it way back when, and I was told if I do this, you'll really have major problems. And I'm like, well, i got enough problems as it is. This is a couple years ago. I don't need any more. This is 10 requirements for participation in fellowship at Shelbyville Christian Assembly. And, you know, Brother Hamilton went through them a couple times. It had been a long time since he'd done it back when he was pastor. And they're just basic to me, basic requirements. I don't want to go through them right now, but requirement number 10 is this. And that is believe in unity and oneness of mind concerning the word of God and as it relates to all matters concerning the Christian life, as well as the refusal to engage in any criticism of the local assembly. That's all of us here. It's membership or it's ministry as unbecoming a Christian. What if we enforce that? Oh, whoa. 
because we might start enforcing it a little more. I don't know. That's the requirement to be membership. Is that unreasonable? It's what we're looking at today, isn't it, with what Paul says? Amen? I think that it would be a good thing. For instance, though, and I have had this, and I'll tell you, I appreciate it. I just had someone here just a few days ago came up to me with a question. They had a question about something that I had said, something I had taught. And I'm saying, honestly, I appreciated that. I really did. Because I've gotten a few anonymous letters, and they aren't really very nice, and they're unsigned. And I'm like, you know, I'm just telling you, you should at least have the decency to come and talk to me. Or at least sign your name on whatever it is. Really? You ask anybody that has come and talked to me, I don't think anybody will tell you I'd bite their head off or just make it like impossible or whatever else. We talked. We just talked. <laughs> and that person just talked about whatever it is, and uh, I hope it was to their satisfaction, as far as I know it was. But how did they handle things? We're still here in Acts 15. Look what it says. How did they handle things? Look down here in verse 6. And it says, now the apostles and elders, it said they did what? They started clicks and arguments and all that. It says they came together to consider the matter. And there was some disputing going back and then, but then they were able to settle that through prayer and getting together. That's the way it was. And I'm saying if we had an issue like that, a problem like that in our church here, we have a church council that Brother Hamilton had put together. It's pretty much the same church council now that it was then. And if there was an issue that came up here, that would be something that, you know, we would get together with the council. We would discuss it pray about it, talk about it from the word standpoint, and fast if necessary. And I'm saying I know we would do that, and I know the, the brothers of the council would do that if we called together and said this is what we need to do, because we have done it. Yeah. <laughs> we did it in the past. Trust me, when you disagree with leadership, things taught, decisions made, and you cause division in the church by expressing your opinions, just trust me, in a destructive way, you're asking for trouble. I was in a church up in Columbus that had a split, a bad split, been down here, seen several times, and I've seen, been at least three times, I know, when there's been secret meetings involved that took place over disagreements with leadership. Not coming to the leadership, but they're going to have secret meetings about the leadership, and I'm saying it's always been destructive. I've never once seen that where it's not destructive. If you would, turn to number 16. We're going to read a good section of this right here, number 16. Beginning in verse 1, number 16, it says, Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, son of Reuben, took men, probably at a meeting, and they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown, and they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, Will you take too much upon yourselves? For all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord's among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And so when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all your company. Put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. He turns it around. 
And then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to serve him? He said, that's a great thing, a great responsibility God's given you. And that he's brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi with you. Well, are you seeking the priesthood also? Like that wasn't enough. And therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, well, we won't come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? That you should keep acting like a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We're not coming up. Then Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they as well as Aaron. Let each take his censer and put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle meeting with Moses and Aaron. Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spake to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And then they fell on their faces and says, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. And Moses says, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own will. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord hasn't sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that belong to them and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest to pick up the censers out of the blaze, for they are holy, and scatter the fire some distance away. And the censers of these men who sinned against their own souls... Let them be made into hammered plates as covering for the altar, because they presented them before the Lord, therefore they are holy, 
and they shall be assigned to the children of Israel. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers, which those who were burned up had presented, and they were hammered out as a covering on the altar to be a memorial to the children of Israel that no outsider who was not a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord that he might not become like Korah and his companions, just as the Lord had said to him through Moses. And I want to finish these last two verses to me are unbelievable. It's obvious God supernaturally dealt with this situation. And look what it says. On the next day, all the congregation of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Now, what happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron, they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. You would think, man, I'd be done doing all my complaining and murmuring against Moses, and they're blaming him for the deaths of these other people that were rebellious. But anyways, I'm saying, if that didn't put the fear of God in you, it does me. That To just blatantly speak against leadership that God's put in place, if that's the case, then if you don't think it's the leadership God's put in place, then I'd, I would probably be going where I could find the leadership God has put in place myself. That's the way I would kind of look at that. So where does this division in the church come from. It's always the same source when these divisions take place, and it's selfish ambition, pride, and boasting. Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride comes nothing but strife or contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. And if you go back to 1 Corinthians 1, that was the problem. We're into the problem now, number two, the second point. That was the problem in Corinth. It was selfish ambition and pride. Because look what it says here in beginning in verse 11. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions. There they are, contentions, quarrels, striving. He says, now I say this, that each of you says, here's what's causing it. I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. The problem wasn't that Paul, Apollos, or Peter, they weren't trying to gain followers. That wasn't the problem, and, and that there was somehow some disagreement between them. And Paul's not saying any of those three are preaching error. In fact, Paul praises Apollos in this letter. The problem was the people were aligning themselves with the different leaders because of style preferences. So it wasn't a content preference. They're all preaching the Word of God. They're aligned with Paul because they were there when he was there at the beginning and he taught them and he was deep in the word and he started the church. But others, it says that Paul says, I planted, but Apollos watered. Paul was there a year and a half. In came Apollos watering. And man, oh man, it says he was eloquent. We read that last week in Acts 18. And they're like, wow, this guy can preach. He makes an argument just come alive. He's not like Paul. Paul will just stuttering around. He just he has a hard time making his point. So there you have the Apollos crowd. And who knows about Peter? They, there's no record that he ever passed through Corinth. I don't know whether he did or didn't. But some of them are aligning themselves with him. It all seems to be in regard to baptism. Who baptized me? That's why Paul makes this issue about baptism. He said, I'm glad I didn't hardly baptize anybody there. So nobody's going to say, Paul baptized me. He said, no, there's only a few of you who can say that. But somehow or another, there's the Peter crowd. And man, who wouldn't want to be with him? He walked with the Lord. He walked on water. He saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's my man. And that's what's going on there. And then there's the fourth group. And that's the group that 
We don't follow any man. We just follow Jesus. Now, I literally had somebody tell me that. I don't follow any man. I just follow Jesus. I'm like, do you read your Bible? Because <laughs> I mean, that's the super spiritual person. I'm not going to follow any man. And that's the way it is sometimes. And that's the problem. One way or another in churches arise because men are placed on pedestals and given cult-like status. There's this one scholar preacher, his name's D.A. Carson. He said this, I thought this was good. He said, Christian leaders are only servants of Christ and are not to be accorded allegiance that is reserved for God alone. It's not that gratitude to Paul or Apollos or some other worker is inappropriate. Rather, what Paul finds inexcusable is the kind of fawning attachment to one particular leader that results in one upmanship, quarreling, and jealousy. Implicitly, such allegiance is making too much of one person. It verges on assigning that person godlike status. No Christian leader is to be venerated or listened to or adulated with the kind of allegiance and devotion that is properly reserved for God alone. And that's what Paul's saying. The problem is that you all are lining up and he's saying, wait a minute, I just got through telling you Jesus Christ is everything. And he'll go on to talk about this in chapter three. Who are these men? These men are only what they are because God has gifted them for your benefit to bless you. And he's the one that should get all the glory. But that's just the way of men. That's the way they are. People will take a person that is a man of God and they seek to elevate him. You could give all kinds of examples. But out of the Bible, in Judges 8, you know, we talked about Gideon. And if you all don't remember, at the point God came to Gideon, Gideon was a mess. He's hiding. He's fearful. He had to get all kinds of encouragement for the Lord before he finally did what God asked him to do with the Midianites. I mean, it was just thing after thing after thing. He had to be encouraged. But after he did all that, the men of Israel, they come to him and they say this, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. And they want to make this guy king. And they're attributing the victory to him and not to the Lord. Now, like I said, he was a mess outside of God's grace. There's no way Gideon could take credit for anything that happened. At least he did have the sense to tell him that, no, I'm not going to be your king. But what did he do instead? He went and said, give me all the gold you got from the Midianites, melted it down, made an ephod. And it was supposed to be, this is where you seek counsel from the Lord. It, it wasn't supposed to have happened. And it said that ephod became a snare to Israel, to Gideon, and to his family. You compare that if you ever read Judges 8, but you go back and you read Judges 5 where Barak and Deborah were given victory and her praise song, it doesn't glorify them at all. It's saying all the leaders can lead when God's behind them and all the praise and glory goes to God and that's the way it should be. That's a beautiful song if you read that in Judges chapter 5. George Whitfield, I don't know how many of you read much of his life, but in my opinion, he's probably one of the greatest evangelists that's ever preached. And he would preach at sometimes the estimates were up to as many as 20,000 people in open air fields. He knew how to stand in a certain place to where his voice would be carried. But he did that all without amplification. They were saying there's people that could hear him that were standing miles away. And the crowds were that big to come out and hear this man because God's spirit was on him. And yet... You want to talk about somebody that could glory in the gifting God has given him. Here's what he said about himself. He said, let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. 
He says, let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me, if by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. Here's what he said too. But what is Calvin or what is Luther? He says, let us look above names and parties. Let Jesus be our all in all so that he is preached. He says, I care not who is uppermost. I know my place even to be the servant of all. And here, this last quote from him, he says, I am content to wait till the judgment day for the clearing up of my reputation. And after I am dead, I desire no other epitaph than this on his grave. Here lies George Whitfield. What sort of man he was, the great day will discover. Because I'm telling you, a person that has an anointing like that, you think the devil's going to leave him and his reputation alone. He was so maligned and they would mock him. I mean, it was some stuff thrown at him. He was criticized by all kinds of people. And he's saying he didn't care. It wasn't about him. It was about the gospel being preached in the Lord Jesus Christ and souls being saved. That's all he cared about. So the question is, is it wrong then? Is it wrong based on what Paul's saying and what we've talked about? Is it wrong to follow a leader? So Paul many times told people to follow his example. And he says, use me as your model. He does it right here in Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 16. He says, for in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. He says, therefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. That's not a contradicting from what he's saying here. And in, in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. He didn't put the period there, be followers of me. He says, even as I also am of Christ. And Hebrews 6.12 says this. It says that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The problem is not in following a godly leader, whether it's Paul or someone today, following their life and faith to imitate that, to follow that. But when they're accepted as almost being infallible or given too much credence, that's when the problem comes in. It really does. And it's not a good thing. Here it is, the Bereans. We've heard about the Bereans. But they had the perfect attitude, the perfect attitude towards Paul and Barnabas. And it says this about them. It says, these, the Bereans, were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and... Search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So it's saying they didn't just sit back and like, who are you guys to tell us anything? We can read the Bible for ourselves. We don't need you, Paul. They didn't act like that. It says they received the word with readiness. But they didn't leave it there, did they? They're receiving the word. We want to hear what God has to say. But then it says they searched. And that word for searched means to examine carefully or carefully study a question. So they're hearing what's being said and they're receiving it and they have respect for Paul, but they search the scriptures daily. Whatever questions they have, whatever this is, they're going to get this settled the right way through the word of God. What is the safeguard against personality cults? That is going to be a major end time deception and danger, this whole personality cult thing. I mean, I have my little boy He's talking about somebody and and he's like, but dad, he says, he says he's a Christian. I'm like, John, there's a lot of people say they're Christians. Yeah, but he quotes the Bible. John, there's a lot of people that say they're Christians and quote the Bible. We have to be discerning. But that's the way it is for a lot of people. If they say they're a Christian, 
and quote the Bible, that settles it. And if it sounds halfway reasonable, but here's what our Lord warned us of. And these are end time warnings. Matthew 24, he says, take heed that no one deceives you for many, not just a few. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am Christ and will deceive many. They're successful. We just need to make sure they're not successful with us. By the grace of God. Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. He says, beware of false prophets. And he says, they come to you how? As a false prophet? No, they come to you as a Christian quoting scriptures in sheep's clothing. He says, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. He says, this is how you'll know who they are. You'll know them by their fruits. So we need to listen to our Lord. But there's many other warnings that he's given us like that. Because history has shown us that personality and charisma overrides reason, scriptural reason. Because look at Hitler. If intellect and all of that was all that it's a matter of how smart you are, how whatever all else, that whole country's following this man. This possessed of the devil. Just the type of the Antichrist is coming. And I would say, look at our U.S. presidents. Are they elected because of substance or because of their... You've got to have a personality. We live in a Hollywood culture, don't we? That's just a dangerous thing. Everyone's influenced by it. We all are. That's the culture we grow up in. We can think we're not, but we are. The only safeguard we're going to have is we have got to be, like Paul's trying to get the Corinthians here, our loyalty is to the Lord Jesus Christ above all. We're not thinking that we're following some guy and what he's teaching. We're following through that man. That's increasing our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we can follow him and know him. And we also, we know this from 2 Thessalonians, that the Antichrist is going to come and he is deceiving those that don't have a love for the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness is what it says there. So we have to love the truth above all else, don't we? And everyone's going to shake their head, yes. And we also have to have a working knowledge of the Bible. We need to be reading our Bibles consistently and throughout, not just reading certain proof texts or things we like. And I would add, fourthly, that we need to be people of prayer. Those four things. God's desire and what sincere devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ should produce. If that's the case and we're a group of people like that, that should produce what? It should produce unity. Because what Paul's saying here, Jesus isn't divided. And he says, so you all, we all shouldn't be either. If we're following the same Lord, look what he says here in verse 13. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 13. It says, he asked the question, is Christ divided? Oh, no, he's not. It was Paul, the one that was crucified for you, your favorite leader. Was that, was that the one crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And that's one thing, baptized into the name of Paul. He's not teaching about baptism here, but you would think he's talking about being baptized. Obviously, it's not the name of Paul. It was the name of who? Jesus. And that's how they did it in the book of Acts. But anyways, if you would, turn back, please, to Psalm 133. Because here's how important it is. Unity in a church. I love this psalm. Psalm 133, three short verses, but it says a lot. It says, Behold, look how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And he goes on, it's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing and life forevermore. 
What's this telling us here? He's saying when brethren are together in unity, it produces the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the oil that it's talking about in verse 2, like the precious oil upon the head. That's what it represents is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when that's the case, he's saying God will bless that group of people. That's what he's saying there in verse 3. It's like the dew of Hermon, that anointing, like descending on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord commanded the blessing these people living in unity, life, it says, forevermore. And that's the way it was for the church in the book of Acts. That's the way it was in Acts 4.32. You don't have to turn to that. It says this. It says, now the multitudes of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And then it goes on. Here's the blessing of God on that. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then it says, and great grace was upon them all. That's the church. That's what a spirit-filled church is. That's the sign of a spirit-filled church because the spirit of God is not creating disunity, division, backbiting, gossip. That's not the spirit of God, is it? So you have people that are spirit-filled and living the spirit-filled life. That's what you'll have living in one accord, speaking in one thing. And he also talks about the schisms over in 1 Corinthians 12. He says that you should have the same care one for another, that there's no divisions among you. Saying that's the way it should be. You know, when Lisa and I moved here to Shelbyville from Ohio in 1984, this church we moved to was, you're always going to have problems, right? But it was united over what was taught from the pulpit by Brother Hamilton from the Word of God. That's the way... It was, and that's why I moved here. I mean, I could have had a regular old believe whatever you want to, and it doesn't really matter. There's tons of churches up. Columbus, Ohio, is over a million people up there. Why'd you move down here? I moved for this church. This is why I moved. Because you can't find them on every corner. Because I didn't particularly care for Shelby, to be honest with you, when I first moved here. I got used to it, and I like it now. But what was taught across the pulpit, and I believe from the Word of God, I didn't feel like I was some brainwashed whatever. It's just... This is a place that I know they're teaching and honoring the Word of God. Everything from healing, deliverance, head coverings, foot washings. There's hardly any churches that do foot washings. We're going to have one soon. And I'm saying whenever I've been involved in the foot washings at this church, God's presence has always been here in a special way. And it's a humbling thing. That's the whole point of it. And yes, it is symbolic. But so is the bread and cup. I mean, you don't do it. But that's what we did here, and I'm glad we did. And there was agreement here within our little body at that time when I moved here. And God's Spirit was present in a tangible way week after week. It was, for those of you that were here back then. I mean, enough to where my unsaved brother comes down to visit, and he's like, man, I couldn't deny that God's Spirit was there and convicted him, and that's what got him saved, was visiting our church back then at that time. And there was a real joy there. But slowly, little by little by little, nothing happens overnight like that. I think the Word of God has been replaced by opinions in a lot of cases. And I think we need to get back to letting the Word of God being the arbiter, the judge of what we do and why we believe what we believe. Amen. So George Mueller, everybody knows about George Mueller and he's we got those orphan houses, but he was also the pastor of a church where he preached regularly for many years. He did that. Him and a brother Craig, I believe that's how you say his name, they were joint pastors of Bethesda Chapel. That was the church they pastored for years. There's a man named A.T. Pearson 
who wrote a biography of George Mueller called George Mueller of Bristol, His Life of Prayer and Faith. And you get a copy of that, I'd highly recommend it. If I get a copy, I'll stick one back there for you to read. It's just great. It's better than a lot of the biographies I've read on Mueller. But they have a section in there on his church and how him and Brother Craig dealt with the church and brought it into existence. And I just want to share that with you briefly. And it says, he wrote this. He says, in all other church matters, writing about Mueller, prayer and searching the word, asking counsel of the holy oracles and wisdom from above were the one resort and the resolution of all difficulties. So when they had anything come up in the church, should we do this or not do this? They would go to the word of God in prayer and they let the word of God decide everything in that church because they're saying we're a group of people here that are committed to doing things by the word of God. And it says when in the spring of 1838, many questions arose somewhat delicate and difficult to adjust. Mr. Mueller and Mr. Crick quietly withdrew from Bristol for two weeks to give themselves to prayer and meditation and seeking of God for definite direction. And he went on to write this. He said, a serious peril confronted the church, not of controversy only, but of separation and schism or division. What we've been talking about today. This is George Mueller's church. And in such circumstances, mere discussion often only fans the embers of strife and ends in hopeless alienation. These spiritually minded pastors followed the apostolic method, referring all matters to the scriptures as the one rule of faith and practice, and to the Holy Spirit as the presiding presence in the church of God, and they purposely retired into seclusion from the strife of tongues and of conflicting human opinion, that they might know the mind of the Lord and act accordingly. The results, as might be foreseen, were clear light from above for themselves and a united judgment among the brethren. Now, I thought that is the way things should be done. Amen? Amen? The Word of God, the Holy Spirit, getting together with prayer. And, you know, you have discussions and open up. Everyone's going to have a million different opinions, but the Word of God has got to be the deciding factor, doesn't it? And Unity can be achieved in our church. This is our church right here. This is it. Okay? The ones that are here, that are members of the church, this is the church. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. He's not writing to the church at Corinth and how they relate to the church at Jerusalem. We need to have unity at this, our church, right here. Now, I felt like Wednesday night, I thought we had a really good meeting myself. I really did. I was really blessed. And I felt like the Lord's presence was with us here from the beginning of the praise. Our prayer meeting, I thought, was very good. And I thought the word afterwards, I thought people were blessed. I mean, I was. And there was just a general good atmosphere. It's like God's presence was here. That's what we need to be praying for. That's what we need to be believing for. And that, to get much better than that. Amen. That's right. But I was encouraged by that. And the thing is, unity has to be based first and foremost on what? Truth. Truth. It's not you're my buddy, you're my friend, you're my relative. That's not what unity is based on. That's a problem. It's got to be based first and foremost on truth. But it has also, and this is where Paul at the end, he goes into from this into the gospel. The reason he does is that is the basis of their unity. It's the gospel, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where unity is going to come from. Because I'll tell you, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a message that is designed to kill pride, isn't it? And it says only by pride comes contention. And it produces the message of the cross, true love and humility. 
So let me end with this. This is what it says in Philippians chapter 2. Paul wrote to them, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he says, fulfill my joy being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Because that's what causes division. He says, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Now, I left a little section out of there, but at the end, that's what he's saying that mind of Christ was, that he humbled himself. The cross speaks of the humility. And that's why he's saying that's what the gospel does, doesn't it? If we receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing to be proud about. And he should get all the glory. It should be something that humbles us. If we have his mind was, and if we have his mind was not to exalt himself, he let God take care of that later, but to look out for others, put their interests first. And when you have that mentality like the Lord Jesus Christ did, you won't have selfish ambition causing dissension within a group of people. Amen? Amen. And that's what we need to have. That's where unity is found at the foot of the cross with our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you once again, Lord, that you've given us this place to assemble together, Lord, and and our brothers and sisters here, that we can hear your word and hear you speak to us. And I just ask you, Lord, you'll do a work in all of our hearts and that you'll put a watch over our mouths, Lord, that when we're tempted to speak evil of any of our brothers or sisters, Lord, that we'll just stop and we'll only speak good things, Lord. And I just ask you, Lord, that you'll... Uh, bring that unity here that Paul speaks of and, and that there will be no division, no tearing asunder, but that we can be united so that we can experience your presence and your spirit here in our midst. And that's our desire and that's our prayer today. And we thank you that you'll do that for us here in Jesus' name. Amen.